Cirrhosis is an immunocompromised state. In the focus of this talk, it's going to be on the all too common infection that some cirrhotics get called spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. It's an infection that occurs in acidic fluid in the setting of portal hypertension, and both the ascites and the portal hypertension occur because of the cirrhosis. And usually it's monomicrobial. So aerobic gram-negative bacilli like E. coli, Klebsiella, they're responsible for more than two-thirds of the cases of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, which I'll just call SBP from here on out. And while the majority of cases of SBP are caused by these gram-negative enteric organisms like E. coli, like Klebsiella, for unclear reasons to me in recent years, the proportion of SBP that's being caused by gram-positive cocci such as Streptococcus pneumoniae, Staphylococcus species, and Enterococcus species is increasing. And there can be some weird organisms that cause SBP. So one of my best friends and a colleague in my group texted me after the first lecture to make sure that Vibrio vulnificus gets its due props. This Vibrio infection, Vibrio vulnificus, occurs after eating raw or undercooked shellfish, especially oysters, and Vibrio vulnificus is tremendously more likely to spread into the bloodstream in people with compromised immune systems, especially those with chronic liver disease. It's an important organism in the sense that more than 90% of the deaths associated with eating seafood in the United States occur from that organism, yet at the same time, seafood-related deaths are uncommon, and therefore seeing sepsis from Vibrio fulnificus is uncommon for most of us to see. And I should note that even though Vibrio fulnificus is responsible for more deaths than other organisms from seafood, it's not the most common GI infection from seafood. For example, Vibrios parahemolyticus is more common as an infection, though that one also happens to cause a worse sepsis in liver disease patients than in those without liver disease. And it also should be noted that most people who do get Vibrio parahemolyticus from shellfish the symptoms will go away faster than your average baby daddy without antibiotics. But in liver patients, death can occur without antibiotics from various Vibrio infections. Now getting back to SBP in general, it can be a very challenging infection. So sometimes it's easy in the sense you have abdominal pain, peritonitis symptoms, and fevers, and usually nail that case pretty quickly when a patient has ascites and known cirrhosis. Other times it can be much more subtle, though something clinically has changed. So yes, we do see people with chronic symptoms and cirrhosis, chronic symptoms and everything, right? I have a headache since fourth grade and they want the million dollar workup, which is unlikely to change anything. But with SPP, the changes can be really, really subtle. So again, you're lucky if it's abdominal pain and fevers, though sometimes it's diarrhea, sometimes it's ileus. And then other times it's just altered white blood cell count with tachycardia and tachypnea and they don't have abdominal pain. I've seen plenty of cases where hepatic encephalopathy got worse and there were no other infectious symptoms and it turned out to be SPP. And there's a lot of things that can set off hepatic encephalopathy, but SPP is one of them. Now it's believed that ammonia plays a role and I sometimes get all academic on my residence saying that you don't have to test ammonia, make the diagnosis clinically when it comes to PAC encephalopathy, 
But somebody always, and I mean always, orders ammonia, whether it's the ICU doc or the ER or the resident or me. And when it's really high, I say, wow, no wonder the dude is so encephalopathic. And when it's low, of course, I berate them and say, see, ammonia doesn't matter. It's a clinical diagnosis. And as a side tangent, hepatic encephalopathy is not always an easy clinical diagnosis. It's pretty easy when someone's really somnolent or has coma or worsening lethargy, but when it's that mild lack of awareness and sleep disturbances, it's not always so obvious. And probably on my deathbed, I'm gonna look like I have hepatic encephalopathy, whether I die from cirrhosis or not, because I think I'm gonna be mumbling weird things like, I always knew I could go through life without needing calculus and all the things I used to tell my parents. All right, so with SBP, sometimes it presents in weird ways, like encephalopathy or kidney function is getting worse. A patient can present in septic shock or with GI bleeding. And it's important to point out that initially SBP can be asymptomatic. And that's why the European guidelines and other guidelines state, I'm just gonna quote the European guidelines, that a diagnostic paracentesis should be performed in all patients hospitalized for worsening of ascites or any complication of cirrhosis. And that's the end of the quote, but I think sometimes we overthink things, right? I know I do. I can sit staring at a wall for hours overthinking all kinds of things, like if my son becomes a priest, would I call him son or father? But when it comes to hospitalization for a patient with ascites for any complication of liver disease, the experts say that you don't have to think twice tap them bellies. Again, of importance, they don't have to have abdominal pain to have SBP. Though on the flip side of that, you can always tell when an Irishman has a tummy ache because they are doubling over. Kind of like when two Irish couples go out on a date, it's called Dublin. And amoeba in Ireland never stopped Dublin. Okay, I'm stopping that and now for a moment of realness, no jokes. So Despite that expert opinion I was just talking about, where the correct answer always on the exam, in the guidelines, in the textbooks, and the articles will say, tap in every case of decline in cirrhosis when there's ascites present. There, of course, are times where, for me, there has been exceptions. And I remember one from a few weeks ago where I had a patient who is encephalopathic and had mild to moderate ascites, and the spouse was there informing me that the prescription for lactulose and diuretics ran out a few weeks ago, and the patient was therefore getting progressively more encephalopathic, and ascites was accumulating. And sure enough, restarting the lactulose and diuretics was ultimately all that patient needed, and I didn't tap or treat for SBP. But it's not that I'm recommending that you do as I do, do as I say, which is tap whenever there's ascites coexisting with decline in cirrhotic patients. And when you do go ahead and tap through paracentesis and obtain the ascites fluid, a polymorphonuclear cell count of more than 250 cells of ascites fluid is considered diagnostic and warrants immediate antibiotic treatment. The reason that is so important to state is that only about 40% of cultures will grow something from ascites fluid that has spontaneous bacterial peritonitis infection. It is helpful when something grows because it will help guide therapy, 
you're not going to pick up that Vibrio infection without tapping. But even if you don't grow anything on that culture, you are going to treat when that neutrophil count is greater than 250 cells. Now, if you do bedside inoculation of blood culture bottles when you are doing a paracentesis for SBP, that yield may increase to 80% of cultures growing something. So often people are in a hurry and send the ascites to the lab where it sits until it's cultured, and that is going to decrease your yield of getting a positive culture. So how does SBP develop? You are not always going to know. That is part of the chaos of existence that's always going to be with us. We aren't always going to pinpoint answers to why every case of SPP occurs, or bigger answers like how are we surviving rotating in space around a nuclear explosion called the sun. But we do have some general concepts for why SPP occurs. Gastrointestinal bleeding results in bacterial infections by a few potential mechanisms, including an increase in bacterial translocation and an alteration of intestinal permeability, SPP can result from bacteremia that originates at a distant site, such as a urinary tract infection. Endoscopic treatments, such as for gastric and esophageal varices, those treatments can be an etiology of SPP. So that raises the question of how do we prophylax or treat against SPP? And the answer, of course, is essential oils. And even though I'm not even sure what an essential oil is, although when I lived in Cincinnati, I do think bacon fat was considered an essential oil. The truth is with SBP, whether it's prophylaxis or treatment, the real answer is you want to use the right antibiotic. And it depends whether you're doing primary prophylaxis, such as any cirrhotic patient with GI bleeding, you want to put them on an antibiotic, which is usually ceftriaxone or fluoroquinolone because that antibiotic prophylaxis will decrease mortality and infections. Therefore, if GI bleeding does occur, which again is not uncommon to be hospitalized for GI bleeding and cirrhosis, a seven-day course of antibiotics decreases mortality, it decreases infection, and for reasons I still don't understand, it actually decreases re-bleeding. Ceftriaxone one gram daily is usually the antibiotic used if there is a major beta-lactam allergy. Ciprofloxacin is another option. And obviously with GI bleeding, you're often MPO, but once oral intake can be resumed, many doctors switch from ceftriaxone to something like oral ciprofloxacin to complete that seven-day course. Now, what about those patients with a history of SBP from whatever reason? The big problem with those patients is that after a primary episode of SBP, the recurrence rate at one year is almost 70%, it's about 60%. So if you do secondary antibiotic prophylaxis in a person with cirrhosis who's had a history of SBP, it decreases that risk of redeveloping SBP from about 68% down to 20%. And that's the reason why most experts recommend daily long-term antimicrobial prophylaxis for a patient that has a history of SBP, whether that be one episode or more than one episode. 
And I know many of you are like me, where we just cringe putting people on daily antibiotics indefinitely. But this is one of those things where it may change in the future, but until we have a better path forward in these patients, you probably should be on indefinite duration of antibiotics unless the ascites completely resolves. And I say that rather timidly because I'm also aware of a Cochrane review that was done recently in 2020 where they looked at antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent SBP in patients with cirrhosis, particularly patients with a history of SBP or very low total protein levels in their ascites fluid because we know that if your ascites fluid protein is less than 1.5 grams per deciliter, you are at high risk for future SBP. And this probably is worth reading the author's conclusions in regards to this Cochrane meta-analysis. So they say, and I'm quoting them, based on very low certainty evidence, there is considerable uncertainty about whether antibiotic prophylaxis is beneficial, and if beneficial, which antibiotic prophylaxis is most beneficial in people with cirrhosis and ascites with low protein or history of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Future randomized clinical trials need to be done. Okay, so I'll stop quoting them. So the prophylaxis thing isn't totally settled case law in my mind, but right now, there are certainly those out there that are experts and hepatologists in this field that feel indefinite prophylaxis should be considered. Now, what about treating SBP? Well, when I said that the treatment is antibiotics, that's partially the truth. So if you're going to be treating, you certainly need to use antibiotics and you can use cefataxime two grams every eight hours. Ceftriaxone's another option, two grams every 24 hours. You can use piperacillin, tazobactam, ertapenem, ciprofloxacin, and that stuff is for your run-of-the-mill SPP and usually will take care of the issue. Again, if you think there's something really weird going on, like eating shellfish or some other reason why you would consider other organisms, particularly multidrug-resistant organisms, you may have to rethink your antibiotic treatment. And how long do you treat for? Usually five days. But if the infection is severe and they're still really sick five days out, obviously keep that treatment going longer in certain patients. Now, getting back to where I said antibiotics isn't the whole story in the treatment of SBP, I want to take us back to August 5th, 1999, when there was a New England Journal of Medicine study that showed in patients with cirrhosis and SBP, treatment with intravenous albumin for plasma volume expansion in addition to an antibiotic reduced the incidence of renal impairment and death in comparison with treatment of an antibiotic alone. Let me get a little bit more specific about that point. So your in-hospital mortality of patients that are treated with, let's say, just cefotaxime in this case, was roughly a third, about 29%, which is similar to other reported studies when you're using an antibiotic alone. Now contrast that with an in-hospital mortality of only 10% when cefotaxime was used with albumin. It is worth saying, therefore, some things about albumin because albumin treatment, it prevents circulatory dysfunction. It's not the only way it works, but it maintains the effective arterial blood volume. As much of the 
kidney impairment, that renal impairment that we see that is associated with SBP is probably hemodynamic. And when we see those kidneys go south in liver patients, we all know that the mortality is much higher. Another thing most of us know is that patients with cirrhosis and ascites that are not infected usually have circulatory dysfunction characterized by arteriolar vasodilation and hypotension. And that's why a lot of us are often a little freaked out when we're adding something like beta blockers for varices because a lot of cirrhotic patients are already having low blood pressure. Now you add in sepsis with something like SBP, you increase that vasodilation and further decrease blood flow to the organs like the kidneys. And therefore adding albumin to maintain effective arterial blood flow does help. It's also thought that albumin is more than just about increasing oncotic pressure. So IV albumin also has anti-inflammatory and pathogen reduction effects and is important for the binding and therefore the transport of drugs. So now getting back to the treatment of SBP, a common regimen is cefotaxime, two grams every eight hours for five days, plus albumin. What's that albumin dosing? Usually it's 1.5 grams per kilogram on day one, and then followed by one gram per kilogram on day three. Now, there are some out there who say that you only need to use albumin if the bilirubin is greater than four or the creatinine is greater than one, which may be a valid point. However, subjectively, I just feel like most of the cirrhotic patients I see with ascites and SBP have a bilirubin greater than four, or they do have some renal dysfunction, or they're hypotensive and worrying me. So very often, it's that combination treatment, that antibiotic with albumin that you need to use in treatment of SBP. And now with most of those big points made, I think it's a good place to end. So it's Dr. Gil Perot, and I will catch you on the next round.